Hello and welcome back to the 47th episode of the Oligarchy Disruptor podcast with your host, Bennett Leon. And of course, we have the lovely Ashley Downing, as always. Hey, everybody. And we have a very special guest today. He is a contributing writer for the week, an associate professor of politics at, like I said, Roosevelt University, an author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, and The Kids Are All Left, um, which was published this year. So um, without further ado, David Ferris. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you for uh, having me on the show and uh, be part of your Apocalypse Diaries here, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully, hopefully not. Uh, Hopefully not so. Um, (laughs) But we'll see. I mean, Trump is the president after all. So uh, (laughs) unfortunately, still the president. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll see what happens in 2020, and that's exactly what this whole episode is going to be about. It's going to yeah. be about the current state of the the Democratic Party, where we go from here, and um, where we have been, like how how we got to this point, really. And what I want to start this episode with is a letter that FDR sent to the convention, the Democratic convention, and. In July of 1940. And I quote, In the century in which we live, the Democratic Party has received the support of the electorate only when the party with absolute clarity has been the champion of progressive and liberal policies and principles of government. The party has failed consistently when through political trading and chicanery, it has fallen into the control of those interests, personal and financial which think in terms of dollars instead of in terms of human values. The Republican Party has made its nominations this year at the dictation of those who, as we all know, always place money ahead of human progress. The Democratic Convention, as appears clear from the events of today, is divided on this fundamental issue. Until the Democratic Party, through its convention, makes overwhelming and clear its stand to, in favor of social progress and liberalism and shakes off all the shackles of control fastened upon it by the forces of conservatism, reaction, and appeasement. It will not continue its march to victory. And I'm just going to end uh, that quote there, or the letter there. It goes on a little further, but I think that's a great gist for um, what FDR was kind of going for there. And the reason why he even sent that letter in is because the convention, the delegates of the convention were threatening not to accept his vice president, Henry Wallace, which, as we all know, is a progressive just like he was. So what I my question to you in reading that, uh, uh, Professor, is why are like how has the Democratic Party changed since July of 1940 until now? Because a lot of the things that he talks about there seem extremely reminiscent of the time we, we are now. Yeah, sure. So, um, well, a lot has changed since 1940. I mean, um, one of the things that was a consistent thorn in FDR's side and in the side of the Democratic Party throughout the whole kind of New Deal and post-New Deal era um, is that a really significant part of the, uh, of the Democratic Party's strength in this time period came from the South, um, where you had Democrats who were, you know, uh, I guess you would call them economically progressive, but um, in favor of racial apartheid. <laughs> so, um, 
you know, up through the 1960s, um, the Democratic Party was this like very strange amalgam of um, of like white northern progressives um, and then white southern racists who cooperated together to implement certain kinds of progressive economic policies, which is what we remember FDR for, but basically made, you know, kind of like zero progress on racial issues because the, the Democrats of the South always threatened to kind of like walk away um, mm-hmm. if the party did anything about um, about sort of like single party racial apartheid authoritarianism in the U.S. South that was the, that was still there in 1940. Um, so the, the biggest, you know, the, the, the meta story of the, of the last 80 years um, is that those white racist Southerners switched parties um, and went over to the Republicans um, and they took a lot of people with them. Um, and so sort of from the end of the New Deal era, which you can date, I guess, to the signing of the Civil Rights Act um, in 1964, um, it, it was this, this long process of a, of a political realignment in this country um, where uh, Democrats gradually became the party of um you know, sort of in fits and starts, right? Kicking and screaming, maybe. Um, but but gradually became the, the party of, of racial justice. Um, you know, however you want to read that. Um, I don't think that that process really consolidated itself until pretty recently. Um, but, and then the, the Republican Party became both um, sort of an explicitly anti-progressive economic party. And then um, over time, uh, sort of collected all of the uh, politically active racists in the country under the same political banner, um, kind of creating the party that you see today. Um, so when FDR was talking about, you know, the Democratic Party succeeds when it's when it's openly progressive and it stands by progressive values, um, I think that that theory has held up like pretty well <laughs> in the post World mm-hmm. War II period. Um, you know, I could. I, I, the only election, the only, the only different thing I would point to would be the, the election of Bill Clinton in '92 and '96, um, where you know this was at the tail end of um, pretty long period of Republican dominance of national politics, and um, the Democratic Party had sort of made the strategic calculus that they needed to move to the right to win a national election. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure that that was true. Um, necessarily because the 92 election was just a real fluke um, where Ross Perot, this this weird independent billionaire, uh, took 18% of the national vote. So it's kind of unthinkable today. Yes. Third party. Um, so there's, you know, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a difference of opinion know. about Clinton would have been elected had Perot not been in the race. I think the political science says that he drew equally from Clinton and Bush. I don't really know. So, you know, it's like so is that a, a majority, you know? So my question with you for that is like, is that really like, is that the the real way to win? Because I have seen, um, as many others have seen, many articles uh, in recent times talking about how Chuck Schumer, which is the lead, the Senate uh, Minority Leader, and uh, Nancy Pelosi, which is of course the Speaker of the House, and how uh, they are using this tactic that. Um, that they've been that like you mentioned right now with like Bill Clinton and moving the party more to the right uh, to gain those uh, voters that typically would go for Republicans. 
Is that a winning strategy in 2020? Uh, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> um, I think, you know, if you look at where the party is um, now versus where the party was, like when I just had graduated college, you know, 20 years ago, um, the party, and that includes Pelosi and Schumer, has moved substantially to the left, you know, um, in terms of its issue positions, in terms of how it um, sort of its public facing messaging about its priorities. Um, I do, I do think it's easy to lose this in the um, in the in the day to day nonsense of Washington, but the party has been moved substantially to the left for a variety of reasons, um, and that, that really does include the party leadership, but. Um, I think that they, both Pelosi and Schumer, and I think a significant number of mainstream national Democrats, um, still have this like theory of politics, which is um, that they can reach across the aisle and achieve things together with Republicans, and that, and that, the, that the voting public will reward Democrats for that high-minded behavior. Um, and you can see this like all over the, the kind of the negotiations around the various stimuluses that are being floated stimuli I don't know, uh, to, to, to combat the coronavirus. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, kind of case in point um, is just the way that the first few iterations of the stimulus were, were watered down um, in negotiations between the branches. Um, I'm a little salty about this personally because uh, the, the legislation exempted organizations with more than 500 employees. Yes. And the um, family leave policies, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, um, I'm taking care of a one year old full time, and then I go, you know, from like 6 a.m. To, to 1 p.m., and then I go and do my, my job for the rest of the day. And it's, uh, it's a nightmare. And had, you know, had the Democrats not sort of capitulated on that point, a lot more people would have access to various leave policies. You know, and that's just one. That's just one piece of it, right? Um, but I, I think yeah. it's it's emblematic of uh, of a commitment to this like bygone world of bipartisanship that actually died like thirty years ago, <laughs> uh, to which to which multiple national Democrats I think, have not really made the sort of a the psychological adjustment that the you know that the other team is never going to help them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And that the only way that they're going to achieve anything under the current circumstances is you got to dig in your heels um, and, and choose two or three priorities and say, like, we're only going to sign another, you know, we're only going to sign on to another stimulus package if these three or four things are in it, you know? Um, so anyway, that was sort of a rambling answer to your question. But. <laughs> um, what kind of leverage? Do the Democrats really have to make those kinds of demands right now? I thought I, I'm pretty sure like the most of the leverage that they had was when people were extremely desperate right, uh, before rent was due on on April 1st. That's when they had the most leverage. That's when uh, any single senator on the Democrat or Republican side could have tried to stop the bill from going uh, from going further um, due to how much of a transfer of wealth this is going. Uh, not to us, but away from us and w- further towards the oligarchy that controls our our government. Sure, yeah, I mean, you know, it's tricky. Um, Democrats control one of the branches of government, you know, um, and so they have some leverage, but the leverage is limited by the nature of the system itself and 
by I think a lot of uncertainty about how the public will react. Um, so you know, to either side digging in and saying like, we're not going to pass this bill, like we're not going to sign on to this relief for Americans until we get X, Y, and Z. Um, and so the the nature of the political system is that you know. The moment where you have the maximum leverage is also the moment where it's, there's the maximum risk to using it. Um, so I'll just take, to take you back a few years, uh, there was this big battle um, in 2013 over the debt ceiling, right? And, and at that time, it was inverse. You know, Republicans held the House, Democrats held the Senate and the presidency. Um, and Republicans like dug in their heels and they refused to lift the debt ceiling. Um, they, they caused the stock market to crash <laughs> briefly. Um, the public turned against them. Um, and in the end, they got nothing um, because, because public opinion was what it was and they could see the writing on the wall and they capitulated, you know? And so I think a lot of Democrats look at the history of the last 20 years um, and they think like anytime a minority party uses its power um, to block something that the majority party wants, that they're, you know they're going to pay a public opinion price for that. I'm not, I'm not really sure that that's necessarily true. Um, I think each individual situation is different, um, so mm -hmm. the next round of negotiations is going to be different than the previous round of negotiations. Um, Absolutely. And you know the reality is, you mentioned the April first. Like people have not actually gotten those checks yet. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah. it's like you yeah. know kind of like everybody lost there. Uh, they, they passed this inadequate stimulus. <laughs> um, and then this country is like too broken to actually distribute it on time. So a lot of people, uh, you know, didn't make their April rent um, or they had to borrow money from friends or something. And so we, mm -hmm. again, we have another point where there's gonna be like really significant leverage for Democrats. Um, and that's over this, you know, the question of whether this stuff will be ongoing. Um, you know, you look to the North and our neighbors in Canada, and they've already decided to give out four months of $2,000 checks to everyone in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still stuck at like 1200 bucks mm -hmm. for like one, you know? Yeah. Right. Which is coming out of your tax refund anyway. Right, yeah, exactly. yeah. I just found out I'm going to have to fork over the whole thing for a, a, a rise in my, my health insurance premium. So it's like, whatever, you know? Uh, it, yeah, I know. It's awesome. I love America. Oh, uh, fabulous. And it's so... <laughs> <laughs> it did nothing for me. I mean, it's done absolutely nothing for me yet. Um, but I'm in a much better position than a lot of people are in. You know, it's like, I don't actually need the stimulus money right away, you know? Um, and so it's um, it's, just, it's really just a question of priorities and where the party wants to dig in and what it wants to dig in for. Because in a situation where you have divided government like this, um, you're not going to get everything. You know, it's like, do we want a bigger stimulus? Do we want protections for vote by mail for November? Um, do we want something else? You know, um, because every time you ask for something, the other side is going to come back and say like, it's this or nothing, take it or leave it because Republicans control two branches and we control one. Um, so at the end of the day, Democrats have leverage, but they do have to be really careful about when and how they use it. Um, and that doesn't mean I'm happy with the, the way they've done it so far, <laughs> but there are some, there are like real trade-offs um, to, to choosing where and how you fight those battles. Absolutely. Um, and I think this is a great segue into a clip I'm going to play. Um, I don't know if you've heard Professor of this um, show on YouTube called The Jimmy Dore Show, uh, one, uh, Progressive there. 
uh, well known. But uh, in this video, he talks about uh, forming a third class party, uh, a third, not third class, third party in uh, America. And uh, um, <laughs> here uh, in this clip, we're going to hear how. Uh, in a similar situation in the financial crisis that uh, we found ourselves in 2008 and the recession then um, the Obama administration as we know of course with like Joe Biden right alongside him as, on his, uh, his right hand man um, they, they took a really interesting approach um, and I use interesting very loosely um, to how they addressed that uh, financial crisis and I think that could be like a little ominous of how he might treat this one. Um, although, like you just said, like many people in the party, uh, centrist candidates or whatever, um, they have moved to the left. Um, and I'm curious to see whether or not uh, Joe Biden has done so. But I want to play this clip uh, first, let everybody hear it, and then uh, we'll discuss it after. When you say that Barack Obama normalized all the horrible stuff that Republicans did, what you mean by that, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that instead of um, unwinding the banks and breaking them up, he made them bigger. So now it wasn't George Bush doing that. It was Barack Obama doing it. So everyone went along with it. He took George Bush's tax cuts, which were controversial, and he, Barack Obama made them permanent. They had a sunset clause in them. Why? Because they weren't popular, right, with regular people. And they had to put a sunset clause in there. And Barack Obama could have just let it sunset, and he didn't. Right. So that's another thing. He also took us from two wars to seven. So now war became normalized. Both parties. So 100 percent for war. Uh, he opened the Arctic to drilling whenever whenever Shell Oil asked. He kicked 5.1 million people out of their house during a recession, which is what would which is like if he, if he was president, he would start doing that right now, too. So that's what you're talking about. All that he built the cages. He he exported three million uh, Hispanics. I mean, he made all this stuff normal. Is what that's the stuff you're talking about. And so we never he never came in and said, hey, we have to have rent relief, mortgage relief. We have to write down the value of these mortgages and help these people stay in their house. He the template was never set on how to handle this, and that's why we got Donald Trump, which was the the key critique that Bernie Sanders was unwilling to make, and that's why he never once critiqued Joe Biden's time at the White House. Correct. That's right. Okay, I'm going to end it there. But um, let's hear some initial thoughts on that. Sure. Um, so, you know, this is like a very vivid period in my life because um, I was just, I was finishing up grad school at the time and the great recession that started in 2007 really, frankly, like altered the trajectory of my adult life in a very negative way <laughs> in terms of like the number of jobs that were open to me and, and to many of my peers. Um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit, uh, I'm not quite a millennial, I'm a little bit older than a millennial, but I'm a, I call myself an honorary millennial. <laughs> a married one. Um, and, um, <laughs> so, you know, there's some things in that clip that, I, that resonate with me. There's some things that I think are, um, I think a little bit unfair to Obama, just in, in mm -hmm. terms of the, um, the political, restraints that he faced with his own um, so I just take it one at a time in terms of what I remember from the clip um, the thing that I that I, I do think I, I, I definitely fault the Obama administration for not pushing for or even prioritizing is is some kind of mortgage relief um, for people who are losing their houses and you know, I wasn't a homeowner at the time, so it wasn't really on my radar, but it, it, it was like, a, 
it was a big oversight because a lot of people a lot of people lost their homes but when you lose a house um you you lose more than the home right you lose everything that you put into it up until that point and then your credit is ruined right so it um it's like a lasting negative consequence of an economic downturn when when people lose homes um they they tend to lose not just their homes but their savings because the house uh represents an investment um you know one of the things that was typical at the time was to be able to get a house with almost no money down um and they don't do that anymore and um mm-hmm. you know that's also a negative consequence of the whole thing um which is that there's, there's there should be ways of constructing low down payment um mortgages that that um that don't put people in a in a position where they could um <laughs> just don't people don't write people larger mortgages than they can afford is actually the lesson of the period not that you that every single person needs 20% down anyway um the, you know the reality of the situation at the time was that the the stimulus that obama got through in early 2009 um shortly after he took power with a democratic supermajority in the senate and a democratic majority in the house um that stimulus itself was the result of like extremely painstaking compromise with the with the right wing of the democratic party itself um and so he was hemmed in by so he had 60 votes in the senate right and at the time uh everyone was was adhering to the filibuster rule so he had no votes to lose um and so that made the the, the most right wing democratic senator in the country like the kingmaker of our politics in 2009 2010 um and those people were like Ben Nelson of Nebraska and Joe Lieberman of Connecticut um and they did a lot of like kind of shitty negative things to um to make the the measures that were being taken in 2009 2010 less effective and less wide ranging than they could have been um and so i don't blame obama for that because obama um it's like you're not a king as the president in America right like you have to be able to work with the legislature to get to get almost anything through mm-hmm. um what i do fault obama for is not sort of like using his his office to to kind of like browbeat these people a little bit harder than he did uh and not push for mm-hmm. things like i think that it's again it's like the Pelosi Schumer habit of like opening up you know like your opening offer um is not uh is not aggressive enough you know and so i think had obama adopted a more sort of hawkish tone on the kinds of things that needed to get done he probably could have pushed that you know most right wing senator in america a little bit further to the left you know and it took you know if you take the whole sweep of the obama administration it took them like too long to figure out that republicans were never going to work with them you know um and that that also had had lasting consequences so Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So- I wonder when they figure that out. Uh, I wonder if it was the point that uh like Mitch McConnell like blocked them from uh, getting that uh marriage yeah. in his office. I I, I would think. I mean, I'm not sure that they're going to work it out, which is like the problem. Why I didn't want him to do that. <laughs> well, and I guess this is a good segue to talk about the future, right? So Biden is you know projected to be the next democratic no- nominee. Um how do you what are your opinions on how he is going to handle this upcoming recession um with or tackle this coronavirus if he does become president in 2021? Yeah, you know, um Biden was not my choice. 
for this nomination. Um, I will vote for him and I will I will work for him. Um, but I'm disappointed in the outcome of this primary. Um, I, I, I do like to say that a um, that an administration, particularly in the United States, where you have this like enormous executive branch, where you can actually make all sorts of policies like within the executive branch without even asking the legislature, um, that, that the administration is like the sum of its personnel and the sum of the kind of people that you would appoint to important cabinet posts, like who's going to be the treasury secretary, um, you know, who's going to who's going to be setting monetary policy in the United States, um, who's the secretary of state, like you know, um, so. To me, an important signal of how Biden intends to handle this crisis is like whatever we hear coming out of this camp about who, who he will be appointing to fill those positions. You know, um, and he doesn't have to make those choices right now, um, but he could do some important work signaling his intentions to people by saying like, you know, I'm going to appoint Elizabeth Warren as the Treasury Secretary or something. You know, like um, somebody who has really good progressive instincts and progressive values um, who wants to treat this crisis in a different way than the last one was treated. Um, so in, in that, that sense, I don't know what Biden will do. Um, it, this is all unfolding so quickly and he's so old and like mm. capable of responding to events um, nimbly that I just, it's like, it's hard to say. Like I know what Biden's instincts are, right? Which is like, um, you know, we'll do something similar that we did in 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that Biden thinks that, that they like to save the world. Um, <laughs> and they did, you know, I did, they did more good than, than active harm, but they didn't do as much good as they could have done, right? That's, that's, that seems obvious at this point. Um, and to me, frankly, like, we may have an even bigger hole to dig out of this time. And it seems like the logic of some really important progressive positions and aspirations will become sort of inexorable. Like, I mean, how many how many unemployment claims do we have this month at this point? Like 12 million, 18 million? Um, and so you're going to have like 18 million people plus their families uh, uninsured. Right? And these are not like, this is not the typical uninsured population, which is like marginalized people. Um, who don't vote. These are like now, um, you know, highly salient, politically active people who have no health insurance, <laughs> no way to get yeah. health insurance. Um, and I think that that is, we're just seeing the, the leading edge of this problem emerging right now. Um, but, the, you know, we have multiple crises heading our way. I think the biggest one is a medical insurance crisis um, where you're going to have many tens of millions of people who are going to be incapable of. Uh, paying their medical bills and getting the appropriate care that they need over the next year. Um, you're going to have a collapse of uh, sort of multiple credit markets, um, you know, people becoming homeless if we don't have mortgage and rent relief. You know, if I had any sense that Biden was up to this, I would tell you that. Um, but I, I, uh, <laughs> Damn. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's what worries me so much are these are the exact same things that he should have been doing um, back in 2008, 2009. And so it's hard for me to believe that this is the, this is the direction that he would take if he does become the next president. Yeah, um, I, mean, I, I find sort of the initial, like the, what, what we do know that he said, 
when he manages to get himself on a live stream is like um we're gonna lower the medicare age to 60 and it's like okay great you know but that's not gonna help 85 of the yeah people, shit. you know <laughs> um and so um you know he just has to be pushed um and there are some additional variables this year that um, that could that could make pushing him a little bit easier or more productive. Um, one of which is like I don't even know how the rest of this primary process is going to unfold, or if any state is really going to be able to hold primaries in the way that we expect them to. Um, but it's entirely possible that the whole structure of the Democratic convention and the whole structure of the remaining primaries might might be out the window in some significant way. Um, especially for states that can't get their acts together about voting by mail. Um, and we also have a virus circulating in the population that like has like a 25% mortality rate for people Joe Biden's age. Like there's just a, there's a lot of, I'm not, I'm not saying we should threaten to kill him with coronavirus. I'm just <laughs> saying um, he, he, he has a party unity problem. Um, I think he knows it, but I don't think that he um, necessarily has the personnel in place to manage it. Um, and he's going like the, I'm just not sure that he's, I think he was chosen because everybody was like, felt safe with him, which is very strange. Um, but I can't, you know, the verdict of the voters is what it is. Um, people felt safe with him, but I, I don't get the sense that he is the person that we want. Um, responding to a very, very quickly unfolding crisis. Um, and the DNC does have the right to replace nominees um, if the nominee becomes incapacitated in some, you know, in some way, shape, or form. And that, and there's a variety of ways that could happen at the convention, that could happen after the convention. Um, if, if something happens to Biden or it becomes clear that he's just like not up for it, um, which has always been my big worry about him from a, like a procedural standpoint, in terms of like, surviving to the election and like getting through a two-hour debate with them. Um, without forgetting anything thinking about the two of them debating for two hours just makes me want to just crawl into a hole um but you know i'm a party guy you know uh, I, uh oh gosh <laughs> i i wish that there were three four or five parties in the united states but there's but there's not um and we don't have the electoral system that would support third, fourth, and fifth parties um, in terms of delivering progressive outcomes. And so, I'll just give you—I'll just give you one example that I like to use with folks, which is um, you look over at our friends in the United Kingdom. Right? Their their conservative prime minister Boris Johnson out of the hospital with coronavirus. You know, um, <laughs> like he's gonna live. Uh, so. There's multiple parties in the UK, right? They have the same electoral system that we do, right? Which is like winner-take-all system at the district level for the legislature. Um, you can win with a plurality. You don't need a majority. They don't have proportional representation. Um, and the left in the UK is split between like four different parties right now. Um, you have the Labour Party, which was led by Jeremy Corbyn. Until recently, you have the Liberal Democrats who are like, I don't know, I guess there are Democrats and Labour's to their left. Right now, uh, you have the Scottish Nationalist Party, which is in Scotland, which is a, like a politically lefty party that wants Scottish independence. Um, and the, the, the Lib Dems, what they're called the Lib Dems, uh, they've been around for a long time under different names. But if you go back, if you look at every single British national election going back to 1957, Labour plus the Lib Dems 
have gotten more votes um, than the conservatives. Every single election for the last 70 years. <laughs> wow. The left has gotten more votes, but they have rarely gotten power because their votes have been split between multiple parties and the Lib Dems and the Labour Party have been unable to come together and like, you know, I don't know, sign a treaty or whatever, you know, put a joint list together. Um, and so my big, like one of my biggest fears right now is that the Biden nomination, which I oppose, um, will lead to a split in the Democratic Party and the sort of like the AOC, like Bernie Sanders left is gonna walk away um, and form their own party or something. Um, and that, and the system that we have to elect the House in particular and the president in particular, um, that will just lead to losing every single race in the country. <laughs> like we could, like if, if the Democratic Party splinters, um, you might then see Republicans walking away with like a massive supermajority um, in the House and the Senate and then winning the presidency um, uh, pretty, pretty handily. So that to me is like a much darker outcome than Joe Biden becoming president because I think Joe Biden is like um, a caretaker, you know, he's like the executor of a will and he's like about to die. Uh, whoever Joe Biden chooses as his VP, I think probably will be the president before 2024. Um, and so that's a really important pick. That's a place to push him on to a point, you know, to, 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 to choose a real progressive as a running mate. And I'm rambling again. So. You just stop me whenever you want me to stop. <laughs> so, uh, um, one question that uh, comes to mind uh, listening to you talk about all these things is like, how? Um, what do you think of like the way that the pri- like the Democratic Party and the DNC specifically carried out both um, the 2020 Democratic primaries? Well, actually, let's just, let's focus on this one. I was going to bring up 2016 because it was kind of reminiscent of 2020 but let's focus on 2020 so like what do you think watching how bernie sanders started crushing everything from the very beginning he had um the most um individual donations of any uh person to run for president um in history and he was breaking records all the time right and how did we get to the point like that the democratic party all these establishment uh, former candidates, people that dropped out, like Pete Buttigieg, um, Cory Booker, you name them, uh, Andrew Yang even, and drops out and endorse, endorses uh, Joe Biden after, uh, before Super Tuesday happens. Um, and, but of course, leaving in the one of the only bigger progressives in there. So it was Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and... Um, Bernie Sanders on Super Tuesday facing off each other against each other, even though we all knew that Warren was going to have a shit showing and continue to stay in it. So, like, what do you think? What's your your take on that whole deal, that whole ordeal that went down? And like, because a lot of people that I know personally feel very salty. And I'm not going to lie. I feel salty as fuck because of that. So what's Um, what do you think about that? So. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, <laughs> I think it's very difficult <laughs> to draw any lessons from this primary because I actually think that the, that the COVID-19 crisis altered the trajectory of this primary 
like starting about a week before Super Tuesday. Um, so the coronavirus thing was a was a big feature of the South Carolina debate. Um, they talked for a while about that, and it is, I think, true that Biden's sort of foreign policy experience, whether you like it or not, I don't care for it super much. Although he was a he was a voice for getting out of Afghanistan, which I appreciate. Um, I think that the, 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 the unfolding of this crisis, which really became, I think, a serious concern for the American public in the last week of February, um, makes it tough to know how anything would have happened without the coronavirus, you know? Um, and so the question is like, you know, what did happen before Super Tuesday? Um, I think there's a few lessons here, right? Like one is that all of the donations in the world don't necessarily translate into votes. Um, and so Bernie did have, like, you know, he did have, he still has the biggest donor base among anybody that was running for president this year. Um, he had this, he had this incredible field army uh, of, of volunteers and, and uh, campaign staff in the early voting states in particular, mm -hmm. who did incredible work um, in, in places like Iowa and Nevada. Um, and that shouldn't be uh, dismissed, but I think one of the things that we learned in this cycle um, is that all the campaign staff and all the donations and all the grassroots energy in the world is sort of powerless in the face of a large scale shift in, in the broader electorate's preferences, um, which are in a primary in particular are not necessarily responsive to field organizations because there were all kinds of states on the Super Tuesday side where neither Biden nor Sanders nor Warren nor anyone really had much of a presence there um, because there's so many states voting on Super Tuesday that you just like can't do it, you know? Um, and so the fact that like, I, you know, the, the big twist in the race was South Carolina. Right? And, yeah. And Biden yes. doing yes. so much better in South Carolina. And it looked like he was going to do like three, four, five days before that primary happened. Um, and there's some political science scholarship that suggests that momentum is like a real thing. You know, um, it's not the single variable explanation of, of every single race, um, but it is important. Um, and South Carolina happens to be held so close to Super Tuesday um, that there's, there's nothing that the losing candidate in South Carolina can do to like alter the media narrative heading into Super Tuesday. So um, the fact, like I think if Bernie had kept it to like single digits or even like 15 points in South, South Carolina, um, the story might've been different and Klobuchar and Buttigieg might not have dropped out when they did, um, had Biden not Carolina so overwhelming there or had mm -hmm. either one of them gotten like a single black vote <laughs> in the entire state of South Carolina, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so do, do you give any credit to representative um, Jim Clyborne, who many uh, that many exit polls saying for the voters that were leaving the polls that uh, for their voting day in South Carolina, a lot of them were saying that many of them were swayed by his endorsement specifically. Do you give any credit to um to Representative Clyborne for single-handedly saving uh, Joe Biden from his demise, that was pretty much inevitable. Yeah, you know, up until um, that point, it was important. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I'm not an expert in South Carolina politics, but 
when you have a, a really influential figure like that in a state where uh, where black voters are so predominant in the Democratic Party, um, yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, imagine if Bernie was like 30 years younger than he is, um, and he was still around like 30 years from now, and you needed his endorsement to win Vermont, you know, <laughs> the Vermont primary. Um, then like Bernie's endorsement would be super important. Um, I think one of the sort of underrated variables in the whole primary is the relationship of older black voters to the Democratic Party itself and the way that Bernie sort of like talks about and positions himself in relationship to the party, um, which is highly advantageous among sort of like younger progressive voters like everybody on this phone call right now um and i'm <laughs> i'm calling myself young just for the because like, i need to feel good you know but for older <laughs> like you know for the for the black voters who i think were were pretty decisive in south carolina um the democratic party is not like this like evil like establishment you know nightmare of a party it's like this is the this is the institution that like delivered black voters in the South out of single party authoritarianism into what they have today, which is like not great, <laughs> but like not as bad as it was, you know? So if you're like, you know, I'm trying to think about how old you would need to be for the Civil Rights Act to have been a really key moment in your life. But I guess, uh, I think probably at least, you know, uh, you were born in 1955 or earlier. Um, you know, say you were like 10 years old around the Civil Rights Act, like you still remember, um, you know, segregated busing, like you still remember segregated schools, you know, officially we all remember segregated schools because we still have them, but like, you know, uh, legally mandated segregation, uh, you still remember having to go um, sit at a separate place in the restaurant and being turned away from a restaurant, you know, this kind of shit, you know, um, for those kind of older black voters, the Democratic mm -hmm. Party yeah. is not something that you want to run against um and so mike if i if i could i if i could offer a critique of the sanders campaign and i, I voted for bernie on march 17th and i did it i did it happily although i wasn't happy about having to vote on march 17th uh, it's a whole other story uh, <laughs> but uh the, my critique mm -hmm. of the sanders campaign is that um i think he misunderstood the the salience and the and the um, the importance of the Democratic Party to this really critical kind of, kind of swing block of Democratic voters, particularly in the U.S. South, um, for whom the Democratic Party is, you know, the only vehicle that they that they know or support um, as a as a vehicle for their group interests. And, and group interests of like older Black voters is like, you know, um, not being uh, plunged into another period of like. <laughs> racial authoritarianism you know <laughs> so um I, I personally would have i would like to have seen bernie talk about the democratic party in a different way than he often does um and you know i, I just to tie this back to, to the beginning um you know you talked about democrats only winning when um when they really live up to their values and i would also say that democrats only win like no one has ever won the Democratic nomination, wanting, like running against the Democratic Party. Uh, I, I think that that'll be possible in ten years um, when a lot of these voters are gone, uh, and when uh, when you guys are the <laughs> yes. of the electorate. But but like we're not there yet, you know. And so the failure to see that that was the shape of the electorate um, 
it's just uh, you know you said salty, um, and so I'm salty about it too because I, Christ, I did not want to have to make phone calls with Joe Biden, uh, but I like I do think that there's some <laughs> things strategically that they could have done different. Um, that might have that might have altered the trajectory of the campaign. Now I don't know if you guys follow me on Twitter, um, but I got into a fight. He's like, I got I got into Bernie's comms mm-hmm. director last week. Yeah, um, like um, my like I was tired the next day, and my wife came down and she was like, "Why are you tired?" And I was like, "I didn't get any sleep." And she's like, "Why didn't you get any sleep?" And I was like, "I was like, I got into it. I got into a Twitter feud with David Serrata." And she was like, "Why did you do that?" You know, um, and it was about you know like the like the hires that Bernie made to run his comms job. Um, I thought were like needlessly antagonistic to sort of like rank and file base voters of the Democratic Party. Um, and uh, and that mm-hmm. it upset me because I, I wanted, you know, like I wanted Bernie to get the nomination at that point. And so um, I I feel like a, like a broken record because I've been saying this for, for years now, which is that like you can't win the Democratic Party's nomination by running against the Democratic Party. Uh, you can win a general election, right? Um, and in fact, it's entirely possible that Bernie would like do better than Joe Biden um, in the general election. I think it's entirely plausible. Uh, I believed and I continue to believe that that was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's like, you've got to get through, you know, yeah. you know what they say, like about the virus, like the only way out is through. Um, and the, like the only path to, to the presidency is through the Democratic Party. Um, so I, I don't think that his instincts were mm-hmm. correct there about how to position himself in relationship to the party or he could have made some conciliatory hires. Um, like you'll notice very early in the process, Joe Biden hired Simone Sanders, um, who was a big uh, a big person in the Bernie campaign in 2016. Yes. And there, there were no analogous hires on the Bernie mm-hmm. side to like bring Clinton people over. Um, and so it's like, you can be as mad as you, as you want against like, some of the people from Clinton world, you know, um, who, who were bad actors in 2016. But ultimately, they needed to bring a certain amount of Clinton mm-hmm. people along with them to get the nomination. And it felt to me like they never tried. So um, that that was, uh, I don't know, that's kind of where, that's kind of where I see things. Uh, I, I think that... Um, Got it. If we want to tie a bow on this for your, for your listeners, um, who I assume are mostly young people, um, you know, p- people under the age of 45 will eventually inherit the political universe, you know, and they will build it for themselves and they will remake it in their image. And Bernie has done so much incredible and important work to, to move the policy conversation to the left. Um, and the, the, the only place that I really differ with Bernie is um, is in, in, in party building, because I'm like a weird political scientist who believes um, that parties are actually really important. <laughs> Um, and that party unity and party solidarity can be built and rebuilt. Um, in other words, like that we could have had a situation where, um, you know, the party was taken over from within. And I think that that still will happen. And it depends on who becomes the standard bearer for the left moving forward. Um, but I, I, you know, I think that AOC has the, the better instincts here, which is like, she pushes and she pushes and she pushes against the party um, because a lot, you know, there's like five blocks of the party that are corrupt and useless. Um, but she recognizes, I think, that, it, that, you know, unless you change the electoral system to proportional representation, that the Democratic Party is like the only game in town and she, she needs to position herself in a way that she can, you know, um, be, a, be a, like a rebel against certain elements of the party, 
but also remain in good enough standing with the rank and file um, that she can that she can win a primary. Um, so when President AOC takes office, mm-hmm. five twenty-nine, <laughs> that that will be the hopefully. Thing, but, I, but I hope that that we see. So yeah. hopefully, we can only fingers crossed. We can only hope. Yeah, um, one last question for you, uh, David. Um, one last question. Your um, uh, like uh, your thoughts on Donald Trump versus um, Joe Biden and the nom- uh, in the general election, along with, of course, like those third party candidates. How do you think it's going to like end up um, swinging based on everything that you're seeing building up to it, like uh, the coalition building on both sides, the rhetoric that Donald Trump is using, the stimulus, the showing up to the left of the Democrats uh, on UBI, um, things like that. Like, what do you, what do you think is gonna, oh, gonna happen? Well, here? you know, um, I, I learned in 2016 the hard way that predicting the future was not necessarily my forte. And uh, <laughs> didn't we all? <laughs> didn't yeah. we all? Um, you know, I think Joe so, Biden starts off as a slight favorite in this race. I think in the same way that Bernie Sanders would have started off as a slight favorite. I think I would put it at like, you know, 55%, um, I think Biden will win. Um, if it were not for the Electoral College, I would put it more at like 80%. Like if we just, if we elected the person who got the most votes, I'd be actually highly confident that Biden would win. Um, but the reality is that the election is gonna come down to, you know, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Arizona. Um, and I'm not that confident that Biden is gonna win the right combination of those states. Um, to, to become the president. Um, I think that he, uh, m- my yeah. fear is that he mistakes his strength with black voters in the primary um, for the ability to turn out um, minorities in sufficient numbers in the general election that he doesn't have to do anything to appeal to them, which is the same mistake that Hillary Clinton made um, when she appointed Tim Kaine as her running mate, like the fucking blandest white guy that she could have found in the US. I can't think of a single thing about him. I'm just like, he tried to speak with that. Um, yeah, you except one, election, right? Though. Except you one. Except one. You know, Biden needs a young person of color, probably a woman, a woman um, to help him turn out key elements of the Democratic base um, who either don't like him or are skeptical of him um and so if i had if i was gonna gamble on it um i would gamble on biden winning um i, I think that there's there's a lot of political science research that suggests that, that the things happening to the economy right now are gonna be really really bad for donald trump um you don't want to be presiding even if it's like a you know this is like exogenous, exogenous shock of a virus like you don't you'd rather not be presiding over the worst economic crisis since the great depression um, and over, you know, the deaths of, I don't know how many people are going to die um, in this crisis, but tens of thousands of Americans will die in part because of Trump's inaction. Um, but, you know, we don't live in that old world anymore, right? We live in a world where 40% of the electorate um, takes their cues from Fox News and Fox is just going to, they're going to blame Andrew Cuomo and they're going to blame the Democrats and they're going to make shit up. Um, and so I suspect, unfortunately, even if, you know, um, even if, all the factors that, that would usually lead to a blowout election are there. Um, I still think we're going to be within a few points. Um, and it, it might be a long night on election night. Um, again, I think Biden's support of DP is really important here. I think Biden's signaling about um, putting some progressives into the senior positions in his cabinet might help 
um, you know, uh, I guess repair some of the wounds of the primary. Um, I hope that Biden knows that he needs to reach out to the left and to younger voters because younger voters are his biggest problem. Um, he costs younger voters like 10,000 million to one. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I don't get the sense that he, he really gets that, but if polling can really help with that, you know, if he starts to fall behind or, or the polling looks too close. And, it's, and it's, I've seen a couple of polls with like Warren as his VP, he does better um, than, than any other potential VP choice. Um, you know, there's, again, political science is not, um, doesn't think that the VP choice matters that much, but I think that this year it probably does. Um, I don't think that Warren is, is, the, is where he should go, but I do think it should be, again, like a progressive, um, you know, uh, younger person of color, preferably a woman. He's already said it, it needs to be a woman. Um, I don't know, that's a, that's a sort of like a magic mix that I'm not really sure is out there. <laughs> Um, but it, it needs to be somebody that signals to, to the progressives who are really disappointed right now um, that he hears them, he understands them. And I think if he does that, he, he has a chance to to go into election day with enough strength that he can that he can he got a victory a victory over Trump. Um, but uh, again, I actually would not gamble on. I'm a gambler, and I wouldn't gamble on it. <laughs> I mean, these are troubling times, but of course, we will keep our audience updated. But I think this is a great place to wrap up. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of this podcast. Your word of mouth is our oxygen. So please give us a five-star rating on um, Apple Podcasts if you're listening on there. Yes. And tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your dogs, tell your cats. <laughs> Uh, to everybody about uh, your new progressive podcast that you're listening to with your homies Bennett and Ashley who update you on the latest and greatest in the news um, which we're happy to do of course follow us also on Facebook at the Oligarchy Disruptor you can follow us on Twitter at Ben the Disruptor and Ashley at Ash the Disruptor absolutely and also guys please do not forget to vote i know with all this coronavirus shit it's very easy to forget what's going on right now but um or what i mean is like the election and stuff that's also going on simultaneously in the background but over half the nation has not cast their vote yet so it is very important that you vote in the primaries up until the general election, which we will go to face Donald Trump. So I'll leave it to the queen of voting to give you her spiel about <laughs> that. So I'll go ahead. Ash. All right, everybody. Yes, don't forget to vote. Um, if you do not know where your polling place is, perfect website. It's called yourfuckingpollingplace.com. And it's very simple. Just type in your address, press OK, and your polling place will show up um, in the times that they're open. Again, that's yourfuckingpollingplace.com. And then, um, oh yeah, any questions you have about voting, so what your registration status is, um, if you can same day register to vote. I think a lot of states, um, actually I'm not going to say that because I'm not totally sure about how um, states are. I know in Illinois they stopped voter registration online quite a few weeks before the actual um, election, but a lot of states have same-day registration. Um, if you aren't really sure what else is going to be on your ballot, there's also a little section for you to see what's on your ballot. 
And this website is called rockthevote.org. Super awesome. Answers lots of questions. Uh, that's rockthevote.org. Don't forget to vote, guys. All right, guys. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. Your word of mouth is our oxygen. So we will leave it there. Thank you once again, and we will see you next time.